killed Jesus? We've spent weeks now understanding why Jesus must be killed. We're all familiar, Christian or not, with how Jesus will be killed. But who was responsible for putting the nails into his flesh, for putting the crown of thorns on his brow? Who was responsible for the humiliation and ridicule that he was subjected to? Who killed Jesus? The vast majority of Christians see no problem with this question. Oh, yeah, they see no problem with it. Thus, they have no difficulty in answering this question. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Roman officials? Was it the great Herod? Was it Pontius Pilate? Was it the Jewish leaders? Or perhaps the most startling statement found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah says this, Isaiah 53, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Yikes. So can we conclude that God the Father killed his own son? Unless we know, collective church, who put him there, then the hows and the whats and the whens and the wheres and the why mean nothing. So this is paramount today that we leave with a concrete answer. And what it seems like one of the easiest answers for us to find of who killed Jesus is found right away within our verses of John chapter 18, starting in verse 1. If you want to read along with me, quietly, I'll read out loud. You don't read out loud. I'll read out loud. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book, uh, Brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. We went and talked great length about that last week. So if you want to know the garden portion, podcast it. Verse two, now, and here's what could be a possible suspect, now Judas, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. As Jesus is there at midnight in a Jerusalem garden, exhausted, overcome with emotion, feeling lonely, but prepared, his time and his prayer is interrupted as over the hill they see through the darkness the light of betrayal, the torches of treason, and the commotion of deception. And the drum major or the field commander is his longtime friend, Judas Iscariot, the Benedict Arnold of their Brady Bunch, right? Judas has launched the sequence of events which murders Jesus Christ. It's Judas, right? Now, it's been said that everything from this moment, where Judas shows up, everything from this moment to the death of Jesus represents the very, very worst of the human race. From this moment to then. That being that faithlessness or, or, or folly or foolishness or fleeing and failure of many different categories of persons is going to be on full display. There's Jewish failures, Gentile failures, Christian failures, unchristian failures, friendship failures, family failures, political failures, and religious failures. Failed, failed, failed. Except for one. And against this awful background of, of infidelity, Christ's fidelity looms high, very high, and lonely in this fog of human failure. Judas being the first infidel. 
And the other gospel accounts tell us that Judas greets Jesus in the garden with a what? Does anybody know? With a, with a kiss. Now, does anybody here have that level of expression in their friendship circles? Is anybody greeting? Did anybody greet another friend today with a kiss here? Okay, good. It would have been a little odd, I'm assuming, because this level of friendship, this intimacy between friends is really unmatched to greet somebody with a kiss. And so for Jesus and Judas, this is the first time we see this level of nearness uh, between the two friends. This is the first time we see this level of nearness in all of the recorded conversations. In fact, this is one of three recorded conversations we have of Judas and Jesus. I don't know if you knew that. The first one being Jesus calling out Judas on being super greedy. The second one being Jesus calling out Judas about somebody here is going to betray me. That's you, big guy. That being Jesus and Judas' second one. And the third is now the kiss of death, which for what it's worth, that is where that term comes from, the kiss of death. But this kiss is disturbing because what we have here is rejection, right? And what we have here is treason done under the banner of friend, companion, and what? Christian. It's rejection and treason under the banner of Christian. Judas is the epitome of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Using the name of Jesus, using the name Christian, using the church to further selfish gain. Did you, did you just catch that? Using the name Jesus, using the church, using the name Christian to further selfish gain. God forbid that ever be said of any of us. God forbid. Yes, 30 pieces of silver was exchanged between Judas and the, the leaders of Israel for Christ's life. But the warning for us today here now is Judas betrayed Jesus for self-gain, for self-service. Basically saying, I would rather have that than you, Jesus. Verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, torches, and weapons. Does anybody remember that scene in Beauty and the Beast where Gaston storms the castle, right? This is it. That scene rocked me as a kid. I love it. I'm talking about the animated version, not the new one. I'm talking about the animated one. And they're storming the castle with like pitchforks and they're going crazy. The hilarious part is they're not going to capture a beast. And there's no magical dressers or ovens that are going to attack these men. Gaston Iscariot brought a rabble to seize one non-violent man. Even Jesus is confused by this. I love the NIV translation of Mark's gospel in this exact moment. This is what it says. Jesus is, gets kissed, he sees all this, and he goes, am I, am I leading a rebellion? And Jesus says that you come after me with like swords and clubs to capture me? What are you doing? Here, just take me. Like, he's really confused by it. Jesus does not get the dramatized nature of Judas. And Judas is fearful of this new world order that Christ is bringing. He's fearful of Christ's revolution. But among the many things Judas doesn't understand, one of them is Christ's revolution is not one of force. It's one of surrender and humility and sacrifice as we are about to see. 
And then friends, oh gosh, what we have here is only recorded in John's gospel and it's one of the most insane things ever. The 13-year-old little Christian boy inside him, he's so excited right now, okay? Verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, whom do you seek? And they answered him, well, Jesus of Nazareth. Jump to verse six. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay. Jesus responds and something amazing happens. It's midnight, it's quiet, and Christ's very still, chilling words launches them backwards. <laughs> like again, the 12-year-old inside of me is picturing them. They get launched like 40 feet, and Jesus is standing there with his hair waving like this, all just totally stoic. Like, that's exactly how I imagine it. Totally deadpan. Oh, but whether something supernatural happens here or not, the experience is one of pure terror. We don't know. We are not told. But either way, there's some sort of perceptible loss of control that cannot be explained. They fall to the ground. And then as the guards lose control, apparently so does Peter. Peter is the disciple who's most like, like Joey Tribbiani. Okay, so that's what Peter's really like. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered, and I just, can we just sidebar this? I love this. I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. We're, we're going to get to the Joey Tribbiani part, but this is beautiful. Jesus, his heart, he wants the full attention of the enemy on him. Let these guys go. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, oh man, this is going to be great. Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And then verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, Peter, OMG, dude, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter, half awake at midnight, swings a sword, probably, this is mostly speculative, but it, it makes sense. He didn't aim for this guy's ear. I'm gonna take out your ear. What are you trying to do? He's trying to take off his head. But Peter's Peter, and he does one of these, and something happens, or the Greek leans itself towards saying part of an ear. So don't think total Van Gogh style, like it's all gone. Part of an ear, the Greek leans towards. But the attack was clumsy, yet courageous. This being the last courageous thing he'll do on this side of the cross. Also, small, small tidbit for any um, seeker or anybody needing some encouragement this morning with God, I just think this is beautiful. You see how John names the one-eared man? Why? He has no role. He has no real talking part. What is the point of naming a one-eared man? Who cares? His name was Malchus. I don't care. I don't waste the ink. But what John just did was given everybody who will read this an eyewitness. Because you don't believe about the ear drawing back thing? Go ask Malchus. He lives down on First Street. Read it. Go ask him. He will vouch for everything that I just told you. 
So this is authenticity. This is validating this as historical truth. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and their officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas. Now, collective church from here, Jesus is arrested. He's put in the back of the cop car and immediately goes to back to back to back to back court trials. Six to be exact. Now, because this could be daunting, and I don't want all of us to be here till like 3 p.m., I want us to get a sense of this in its entirety. So I want us to see this, or at least to just see this fully. Does that make sense? So any Bible buffs or any history buffs who are interested in this level of details, this might help your understanding. But I'm also going to warn other people, I'm going to put a screen up here in just a moment, and it's going to feel like school, and nobody likes school. Except for the, our, you guys like school. The kids like school, but school stinks. But the kids like school. Okay? So we're going to put this screen up. Boom, Derek. Okay, this is it in its entirety. I want us to see this. Again, this could feel like a lecture. I really hope it doesn't. I just want everybody to get this in its entirety. The time frame. This is early, early, early Friday morning now. This is where we're at. We're going to be up here at Annas. Makes sense? So Jesus and his boys would have been in the garden around midnight on Thursday. Judas shows up somewhere around 1 a.m. And on this early, early Friday morning before the sun has risen, Jesus goes to his first court trial at 1.30 a.m. But trials 1 through 3, trials 1 through 3, I want to make sure you guys get this, are small court. They are small court. They are religious Jewish trials. Remember that the law of the day was theocratic law. Everything in Jerusalem was ruled by theologians and theological legalities. That's why Jesus first goes to a former retired high priest, Annas. He's not even on the job. And he goes to this guy first. But now, I want us to see, see how fast this is? This is odd. The hurried nature of this should strike us going, this is weird. And what little we know of modern day judicial, judicial, judicial systems, this seems fast. I remember my wife and I, we had to take a landlord to small claims court. It took us like seven months to just to get the, the suing papers, whatever that's called. John, what's that called? You've been served papers? Yeah, 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 that. Anyway. <laughs> so reading about this, it seems like they're driven by something other than the law. You're a lawyer. Are you this type? Are you like Perry Mason type of lawyer? Oh, that's a bummer, because I thought you were, because I have a bunch of questions for you. But as a lawyer, nonetheless, John, you get, have you ever heard of a judge or a lawyer having a court at 1.30 a.m. in the middle of the night? That's, that's odd, right? This motive, as a real lawyer just proved, <laughs> who's another lawyer? Who are you pointing to? I can't see them. Oh, yeah. Cherry is the type. Jerry, have you ever seen somebody at 2 a.m. have a lawyer? Or, you know, not a lawyer, a court case. Two lawyers. (laughs) So if they called you in, Cherry, at 2 a.m. to get this weirdo who they think is a total nutball, which is Jesus, would you be like, exactly, exactly. The motive is not pure. They start small with Annas in order to not bother the more important lawmakers. And if they can keep this small and if they can keep this quick, That's a W. 
That's a win. But then Jesus is moved from current to current high priest, Caiaphas, who is Annas' son-in-law. Okay? Then Jesus spends some time in prison. You guys see the prison part? He spends a couple hours in prison during the deliberations. Then the third trial, all the Jewish elders, including the high priest, scribes, so that's like saying all the seminary professors and pastors in the city, and the whole Sanhedrin show up at what time? 5 a.m. 5 a.m. So the Sanhedrin, a.k.a. the Great Council, this was mostly made up of about 70 men. 24 chief priests, 24 elders, 23 scribes, plus the high priest that makes 71. Friends, they were the final court of appeal. These were the big dogs. They were the highest and ultimate ruling body in Israel. And for them to be there that early is wild. Wild. Now, let me give you something basic to understand. So if you're taking notes, if you're trying to learn about this stuff, what we need as a basic framework is this. Jesus is up against two brick walls of government. Religion and political The first three trials were Jewish religious trials. The last three are Roman secular political trials. Reason being is that the Jews were occupied people under Roman law. So Jesus Christ is being like both tried on the spiritual but also secular charges. But because he is an innocent man and they can't find charges against him, you read the other gospel accounts and people were coming in in the middle of the night, super shady, having to make stuff up. And then we find out that no witness testimonies were actually lining up. And Jesus is just standing there watching them make this up. And then look at this. Mark 14, 55 says this. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Lawyers in this room, AJ soon to be lawyer, wherever you're at. Lawyers in this room. What does that mean? It means as you guys probably have figured out, that the verdict is already decided before the charge was. For Jesus, the verdict was already decided before the charge was. But then they get one thing against Jesus. They find one thing against him. One accusation sticks more than the rest and it totally works. Finally, someone makes an accusation and get this. No, no, Jesus! I heard him a while ago say he's going to tear down the temple. The accusation is this. Jesus is a terrorist. Oh, you heard him say he's going to tear down the temple. And he's going to build it in three days. Mark 14, 58. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. The destruction of a worship place was a capital offense in the ancient world. Author Philip Yancey wants us to know how ridiculous is this. This is what Philip says. Imagine the reaction today if an Arab ran through the streets of New York shouting, the World Trade Center will blow up and I can rebuild it in three days. It's ridiculous that this charge is against him. So at this point, guess what Jesus does? He goes completely silent. And thus, doing so fulfilling prophecy 
We're gonna spend a good chunk of time next week talking about all the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus has taken part of. But for now, Isaiah 53, seven says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to a slaughter, like a sheep that is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Anybody here ever been mad at somebody, maybe a spouse or a friend, and you just go silent on them? Is there anything more infuriating? I'm trying to have a fight, like, right? Silent treatment is a huge sign of torture. It's gnarly. If I do premarital with you or if I have a marriage counseling with you, I'm going to tell you silent treatment ain't cool. It's not cool. Because what happens is the other person who's getting the silent treatment, the rage builds. Say something! Silent treatment drives people mad. So much so, look at verse, or I'm going to read to you Mark 14. It should be on the screen. You'll see what's happening here. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Then finally, a real legitimate question comes and Jesus answers it. And what does Jesus say in verse 62? I am. I am. If we would have been there, our eardrums would have popped out of our ears due to the collective gasp that would have happened over that crowd, over those people, whoever was in that room. I am. You remember that crazy moment when Kanye ripped that microphone from Taylor? Remember that? (gasps) What did he just say? What is he doing? That's this times a gajillion. Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In these religious courtrooms, there would have been nothing more heinous than those two words spoken by a man, I am. When the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? By replying by what he's he's saying he's doing, like how Jesus replied, he's essentially saying this, I am and I will come to earth in the very glory and judge the entire world. Basically, he just said this to Caiaphas. You guys think you're the judges? Nah, I'm the judge. I am the judge. I am, I am, I am. It's an astounding statement. It's a claim of deity, and it is the eternal name for God. I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah. What he just told them is, I am the very God whom you serve and worship. And the spiritual, close to God, religious, Bible-thumping high priest detonates. Verse 63 says, and the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard him blaspheme. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So it's easy at this point to think Caiaphas is the one who killed Jesus. But here in this crazy moment, Caiaphas sends him away to another judge. John 18, 28. Then they led him from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now notice this. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Lawyers here, everybody who's possibly curious, this is the answer to the hurried nature. Why is it so fast? That's the answer. Passover, Passover, Passover. 
you want to know what the Passover is? We talked about it at great length, great length a couple weeks ago. That is why everything is so rushed. It makes sense, finally, that the seven-day Jewish Passover and Jewish tradition, it's currently happening. You can't be defiled. And what would have defiled you is walking into a pagan Roman person's house. So they want to speed this up because Jesus is a beloved, famed figure in this city. They want a fast verdict to not upset the equilibrium of, of, of the Jewish people and lose face as their leaders. It's like when Russell Crowe and Gladiator could not be killed by Joaquin Phoenix. He just couldn't do it because the public loved him. The public was entertained by him. So Caiaphas strategizes and makes a move, which to us should seem like this is belaboring the point. The sun will soon rise. They need to hurry. And what does the high priest do? He gives them to the Roman ruler? You're wasting time, Caiaphas. He gives them to the most infamous, one of the most infamous people in the Bible, Pilate. We have to at least wonder why. And he actually, again, like I said, quite literally gives him over. They can not enter because of defilement. But I'm assuming we can at least see the irony here, right? There's some serious irony here. Avoiding defilement while what they're doing is vile and the torturing and turning over of Jesus. So what does that tell us? It tells us that it's possible to obtain and hold every detail of religion and spirituality or of being part of a church, like the Jewish people, withholding from not entering, and yet be far from God. They were doing all of this and avoiding the house for religious reasons. Spiritual reasons. I mean, I, I believe it's my job to ask, is there anybody like that here today? The scriptures force us to at least consider, do I uphold all these religious, spiritual activities, but my heart is far from God? John eighteen twenty nine. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? Pilate doesn't like Jewish people. Pilate doesn't like Jewish theology. Pilate doesn't want to get involved in their simple little Jewish disputes. What are you doing here? It's seriously like a small California civil lawsuit being brought all the way to the Supreme Court. What are, we, what are you doing here? Go handle this amongst yourself. I don't want any of this. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. You take him, get him out of here. But here the Jewish leaders spill the beans on why they bring him. This is why Caiaphas did this. He spills the beans and why they're on their doorstep. All the impure motives, all of the hush, it says it right here. And as they tell this to Pilate, Pilate feels it. And Pilate is, I believe, is, is taken back by it. Verse 31. Then Jews said to him, well, the reason we're here, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, oh, that's why you brought him. You're not allowed to execute people. Only Roman rule can. So you want me to kill him. Oh, so Judas is out for killing Jesus because this is way beyond that. Annas, no. Caiaphas, no. Is Pilate our culprit for killing Jesus? Now we know from other gospel accounts that he goes from Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate again, everybody's saying he's innocent, but we don't have time to go over that. 
We're going to spend the rest of our time, our short amount of time we have left, on this very, very tiny but stout conversation that, that exists between these two men, from judge to judge, from Jesus to Pilate. And I encourage you, collective church, if, if we listen, these moments are so relevant, they're so powerful, that if we receive it and we submit to it, it will forever change you and it will forever change me. Now, some people joke from time to time that when they're before God, they're going to ask this and they're going to ask that. My daughter always tells me when she's with God, she's going to ask God, what happened to all the unicorns? She really wants to know. And I always tell her they drowned a horrible death in the flood. And she does not receive that answer. She doesn't like that answer. But if we had a chance to sit across from Jesus as Pilate did and asked him one question, I think Pilate asks probably the greatest question we could ask that millions and millions of people have asked since this day. And it's this. Jesus is apart or across from Pilate and Pilate basically just says, are you the real deal? Are you who you say you are? Pilate asks, are you a king? Verse 33 of chapter 18. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? So we know the contrast of the courtroom changes, but we also see the contrast of the question. Caiaphas was asked, or asked Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Pilate asks, are you a king? This is now transcended theological and it's got into political disputes. Verse 34, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or do other tell you? So essentially it's like, did other people tell you to ask me that? Are you really asking or did a bunch of other Jewish people outside tell you to ask me that? Before Caiaphas, Jesus claims divine rule and is a threat to everybody and how they live. Before Pilate, Jesus claims government rule and is a threat to everybody who lives by them. And I don't know about you, but I, I love Jesus's razor edge approach. Jesus does not ever just confront artificial, superficial, depthless reasonings of the day. I'm not gonna get bogged down with that. Jesus confronts like a wrecking ball man's structures and frameworks of authority, of judgment, and truth. And Pilate is over it. He's annoyed. John 18, 37. Pay attention to this, because this should blow your mind. So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. To the truth. Everyone who... Everyone, excuse me, who was of the truth listens to my voice. And then look at Pilate's response in verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? How very Angelino of Pilate. How very 21st century of Pilate. Pilate in this moment, we can safely assume is a relativist. I wouldn't be shocked if there are relativists here today in this room. Relativists believe two realities exist. One, that there is no such thing as truth. That truth is an unhelpful, confusing category since there's no external objective standards that are valid for anyone. Or second, 
They may continue to use the word truth, but it simply means truth conforms to one's subjective preferences. In other words, you do you. In other words, true for you, but not true for me. What's dangerous about Pilate's words here are since he's saying, I don't know if there is truth or I can't prove objective proof. So what Pilate's saying then and what most relativists say is then I guess I'll define it myself. I'll be my own master, making Pilate supreme. One of my favorites, G.K. Chesterton said this a hundred years ago, says a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth, this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does not, that a man does assert is exactly the part that he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. We are on the road to producing a race of man too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Christianity believes there's a single truth for all. One of the most offensive things you could say in this city. Christianity believes the sheer existence of God creates the possibility for objective truth. Jesus isn't interested in existential truth that tickles the ear or turns somebody on. Leaving Caiaphas, leaving you and I, and leaving Pilate at a crossroads. Mark 15, 12, and Pilate again said to the crowd, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What am I supposed to do with Jesus? I'm a Bible teacher, and again, I say, my calling is to leave people with that very question. What are you going to do with Jesus? Now, I'm not here to tell you that you must answer this question. I'm not here to say that. I'm here today to tell you that you've already answered that question. Meaning, There's no neutral spirituality. There's no neutrality with Christ. There's no moderation with Jesus. There's no halfway. There's no blurry. Jesus cuts the head off neutral snakes, and he does so by the blade of his identity and his claims. I think one of either the devil's greatest lies or one of man's greatest misconceptions is that there is some brief, some small, some moral safe zone exists somewhere. A waiting room for eternal decisions. I'll I'll answer that then. It doesn't exist. It does not exist. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We either crown him as king or we've either already rejected him like Peter has done during these court cases out of fear. 
We either crown him as king or whether we reject, reject him like Judas does out of selfish gain. We either crown him as a king or we reject him like the crowds and the high priest because religiously he does not line up with us. We either crown him as king or we reject him like Pilate does where we literally, he's gonna go out there and publicly wash his hands and say, I'm done with this. I want nothing to do with Jesus. So it's knowing that that actually answers our introductory question. Who killed Jesus? You did. And so did I. You did, and so did I. Preacher Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He's one of my favorites. He says, my sins were the scourges which lacerated those blessed soldiers and crowned him with thorns, those bleeding brows. My sins cried, crucify him, crucify him, and laid the cross upon his gracious shoulders. His being led forth to die of sorrow, enough for one eternity, but my having been his murderer is more, infinitely more grief than one poor fountain of tears can express. If we've paid any attention, and you don't necessarily have to, but to church history or to the creeds or to Christian history just in general, Pilate is a highlighted figure. Meaning, not Annas, not Caiaphas, not other religious leaders. All of this really gets put on Pilate. Why? Because he pulled the trigger. Because Pilate is a symbol. He's a symbol of the state. Pilate is a symbol of secular power, of material world, of ignorance, and of darkness. Pilate is every man. Pilate is you and Pilate is me. Now, I don't know about you, but I almost want to make excuses for Pilate. I found myself this week trying to make excuses for him, for Annas, for Caiaphas. Yeah, that's the way it was back in the day. It was barbaric. That was the norm. It was rough. But I know from my own heart, any excuse I'm trying to make for them is me trying to excuse it of my own sin. It was my insurrection. It was my insurrection which made me justifiably condemned. It was my sins that said, I'm not going to love God with all my heart. It's my sins that said, I'm not going to love my neighbor. It's my sins I'm not going to please. I'm going to please myself. There's this powerfully, some powerfully sobering lyrics from an old African-American spiritual that asks, were you there when they crucified our Lord? It's this trippy question, because of course not, but at the same time, yes, we were there. But we were not there as passive bystanders. We were there as, 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 as participants. So I, so we, like the crowds, when Pilate asked, what do you want me to do with Jesus? I, as Casey Fritz, shout louder than the rest, crucify him, crucify him. It's been said before, and I really encourage you to, for all of us to get this. It's been said before that before we can receive the cross as done for us, we must, we must, we must, we must know it's been done by us. And if we know this, and if we receive this, then what happens next is beyond description or depiction. And I'll go through it quickly for time's sake, but John 19.1 says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. We're going to go over some of the most gruesome moments and words in all of the Bible. 
flogged, words can't, cannot carry the reality of this torture. Jesus, at this moment, when Pilate said, take him, Jesus, at this moment, would have been stripped naked. He would have been tied to a post or to a pole with his back and his buttocks and his legs were whipped either by two soldiers or one soldier going back and forth, alternating positions. None of this, I don't want anybody to think that this is some ordinary, run-of-the-mill, like Indiana Jones bullwhip. No. This instrument was, was, was stouty, it was short, and had leather thongs, uh, leather, leather thongs at the end of it that, that had like these, these chunks of bone and lead and metal and rock in them. So essentially... Regular whips return after a strike. Not these Roman whips. If you would have struck something, the Roman guard would have had to pull with all of his might to retrieve it back. It sticks. Remember, Romans were professional torturers, professional executioners. They spent their time discovering and, and perfecting how to do this. Now, there's a lot of confusion around the number of whips Jesus would have received. Many people say, oh yeah, 40 minus 1. 39. It's Jewish law that limited it to 39 blows. With Romans, there's no maximum. I have no idea. We have no idea how many Jesus got. That was Jewish law. But what we do know from history, and forgive me for the gruesomeness of this, that it wasn't unusual that a man's internal organs and the white of his bone from his back would have been completely exposed. His blood would have been everywhere. Everywhere. John 19, 2-3 tells us, after the scourging, this battalion of soldiers took this scarlet robe and they pressed it on his exposed shoulders. And they pushed it onto him. Then they took a reed and they put it in his hand and then they knelt down and they mocked him saying over and over again, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! All the while they struck him with his hand, with their hands and spat upon him. I mean, this is a level of hatred that is just beyond. And then they wove a crown of thorns. Now it's probably not the kind of crown that we think of like a rose bush like a red rose bush type thorns. In Palestine, there exists a plant that's called bramble. And this is commonly believed what most scholars would say the plant they would have used to crown him, uh, to give him a crown. Its stem was pliable, but its, its thorns were long, half inch to an inch, but they were almost hook-like. So it's not just sticking straight out, they were hook-like. And they took it and they twisted it on his head his forehead and his skull. I, I think the Roman soldiers unknowingly took an object and fa fashioned a crown of torture and mockery, but we, no, 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 we are invited to something more sacred, something deeper. You see, where Adam and Eve sin, bringing evil and the curse of this world upon themselves and upon us, the Bible says that thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. Christ wore, Christ became, Christ was pierced by the very curse that brought our sin.
I hope as I close right now that I haven't confused anybody or led anybody astray. Yes, our sins put Jesus there. Yes, our sins were part of the flogging. Yes, our sins were part of the crucifixion. But the question of who killed Jesus must also be answered with an awareness that he chose to die. Jesus deliberately and voluntarily chose the twisting, chose the exposed, chose the flogging. Do you know what this does? If we understand that, do you know what this does? And let's again take this into our time of response. This sets Jesus apart from any founder of any other major world religion. That is truth. Their purpose was to live and be an example, but Jesus' purpose was to be rejected, to die, to be a sacrifice as an example. Yes, to satisfy God's wrath. Yes, to fulfill prophecy. Yes, for the law. But yes, Jesus was identified in this moment voluntarily by his wounds and by his stripes. Thus, 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 so were you and so will I be. Meaning, because Jesus was lonely, forgotten, rejected, lonely, forgotten, rejected, despised, abandoned, and hated, then when we experience those same monsters, we no longer are allowed to think or can think, God has deserted me when I'm rejected. God has deserted me when people hate me. God has deserted me in suffering. We are no longer can think that because actually it's quite the opposite. We are closer to the Lord than ever before. That is something to sing about. Amen? Let me pray for us.